lesson to you. So let's get our Bibles out and open up to the book of Acts, chapter 1. We are talking about a kingdom culture. We're talking about the beginning, the genesis of the church. We're looking at this book, the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, the one who authored the Gospel of Luke. This is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And it walks us through the story of the church. How did the church come to be? How did we get to where we are today? Well, this is where the church began. And it's the story of a kingdom. The Savior showed up. He talked about the kingdom. He ministered on behalf of the kingdom. He prepared people for the kingdom. He equipped people to go out and spread the good news of the kingdom. And along the way, over the generations and through the centuries, a lot of things have gotten tangled up and twisted up. There's been some amazing times, some times of revival, some times of of just an amazing move of God. There's been a lot of dark times and a lot of confusing times. And, you know, I wish that I could stand up here and say that the church from the moment it began in the book of Acts has just continued to, to grow and to blossom and to be more and more faithful, and, but that's really not the case. And even today we look around and we see so many that have strayed from the purpose and the path for which God created the church and has established it for. And so we talked a little bit over the last couple of weeks about how this is a, a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom with earthly implications. And I think that one of the huge problems that I see today is that there's a lot of people who are claiming the name of Christ, who are building an earthly kingdom that has spiritual implications. And that's not what God's called us to do. We're not building an earthly kingdom. We're building a spiritual kingdom. And so if we sort of trail down that thinking, what, what would be recognizable to almost all of us in this room is that there's a belief that's sort of permeated our culture that you know, if we just become better people and we just continue to excel at living by spiritual principles, well, if we can do that, then we've fulfilled the mission. And that's not at all the mission. That is to completely and utterly fail at the mission. The mission is so much bigger than that. So we're going to look today at the 10 days that span the time between the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at next week. And so Jesus has risen from the tomb, as we've just sung. He's, he's come to life from the grave. And he spent 40 days meeting with his followers. And then he ascends to heaven. And he tells them not to do anything, but to wait, to go to Jerusalem and to wait. And so for 10 days they wait. They don't know it's going to be 10 days. They don't know how long it's going to be. It is 10 days, but they go and they wait. And we want to know what happens in those 10 days as they wait. Not really fully understanding what is about to happen, but knowing that they have just seen and spent time with the risen Lord. They saw 
him die. They knew that he perished. Now he's alive. And so he tells them, go to Jerusalem and wait. One simple command. Let's pray together and then we'll read. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you saw it necessary to give these words to us. And Lord, somehow in your perfect sovereignty and your mind that knows no limits or no bounds, even as these words were being breathed out by you, Lord, you knew that this day would occur and that we would be here at this moment, that we would hear these words and be moved by them, Lord. And so we humbly submit ourselves to them as your perfect and errant words intended for us. We thank you for what you might do among us today. And we give you praise in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 1, let's begin reading in verse 12. So after Jesus tells them that he's going to give them power and they're going to be his witnesses, and he tells them to go and to wait. So verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, all they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, although the number of names was about 120. And he said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And he was numbered with us. And obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with his wages of iniquity and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all of his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is now called in their own language Akaldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all this time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph of, uh, called Barsabbas, and who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he numbered with the eleven apostles. And so that seems like just a <clears throat> short description of what was going on. It doesn't seem when you're reading through that that there's anything necessarily earth-shattering about 
what we just read, but if you stop and really think about what's going on, if you try to put yourself in their position, you try to understand all the things that are going on around them, and then you ask yourself, well, what would you do if you were there, if you were numbered among the 120? You know, when, I, when I'm out of town on the rare occasions, usually it's about maybe two or three times a year I'll be out of town on a weekend and I won't be speaking somewhere, so I'll have the opportunity to go to church and always uh, take full advantage of those opportunities. I remember when I was on sabbatical that there was always this excitement of the coming Sunday and the choice as to where I would go to church as we were driving across the country. And Well, what is so exciting about getting to go to church somewhere else? Well, of course, I mean, if I had my choice, I would rather be with you. But I want to go to church other places because I want to see what's going on. I want to see how they do things. I want to, <clears throat> I want to go in and not be known. I, I want to park in the visitor parking. I want to walk in and act like I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And I just want to see what happens. I want to be inspired. I want to be challenged. I want to get new ideas. I, want to, I just want to see how things are done. But there's always this one question. You know, as you're walking into a church for the first time, is, is there life here? Is there life in this place? Like what? Because, you know, the building it could be big and enormous and nice, or it could be small and run down and raggedy, and that's not going to tell you if there's life there. The parking lot could be full or it could be half empty. That's not going to tell you if there's life there. You got to get in there. You got to walk in there. You got to you got to get amongst the people and you got to take it all in. And it makes you sort of think and ask the question. What can a pastor do to make life come into a church? And the answer to that is nothing. Nothing. There's nothing a pastor can do that makes life flow into a church. Remember when John was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit, and he said in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God that brings life into a people, it's like the wind. You know when you feel it. You know when you, when you hear it, but you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going, and you don't, you don't know how it got there, and you don't know how long it's going to stay. It just moves about and goes where it wishes. But it's not that we would say that, well, we can just come into a a building and find a people all sitting there twiddling their thumbs and waiting for the wind to blow. Well, we know that's not true either. And so the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. 
And there's a good way to understand how life comes, how at least the wind may blow amongst a people. You know, uh, Apollos and Paul were obedient and, and active to do the things that God called them to do, to do. And so they were the means that God used, but they weren't the cause. In other words, by planting and watering, there's no guarantee that the Spirit's going to come, but there's a guarantee that if you don't plant and water, that the Spirit's probably not going to come. So there's nothing you can do to force the Spirit to come, but there are certainly things you can do that will welcome the Spirit into our midst. But when you think about it, you, you just think, you know, I, this is what I think. I think, well, I, I've been a pastor here for 18 years, almost 19. I've never saved anybody. I've never fixed a marriage. I've never led anybody from darkness into light. I've never healed anyone. God's the one that does that. Only He can bring these things about. You know, I, I love, I love to, to plan. I love to look forward. I love to, to think about vision. I love to... I always have in my mind some destination some direction next year, two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now. I think it's important for us to know that the things that we do today have a tremendous impact on the things that will be true among us in the days that lie ahead, and we want to be good stewards of that. I thought about when we were preaching through the story of Elijah. And I thought about 1 Kings 18 when Elijah was up on Mount Carmel and Pastor Matt preached the, that sermon about the text where there's the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and, and how Elijah takes the stones and he takes the wood and he builds the altar, he cuts the bull into pieces. You know, he can build the altar. He can set the stones up. He can, he can do everything that he needs to do. But what cannot Elijah do? He cannot call fire down from heaven. Only God can send the fire. So we want to be a people who, who build the altar and who prepare the way, but who also understand that only God Sends the fire that consumes the altar. So God tells his disciples, Go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait because I'm going to send fire down from heaven. I don't want you to do anything until the fire comes. Two questions at the top of your listening guide. 
question number one. Do you want the fire? Do you want the fire? If you've been around church any amount of time or even remotely familiar with your Bible, then you know what the fire is. You know what happens when the fire comes. And yet I still think it's a pertinent question. How is it that we see 120 people waiting, wanting the fire? The fire, we'll, we'll never be able to earn the fire. We'll never deserve the fire. There's nothing that we could ever do that will force God to send the fire. You can't manipulate the fire. You can't orchestrate the fire. The world is filled with counterfeits, but they fall infinitely short. No matter what we do, we can never be worthy of it. But do you want it? Do you want it? Or maybe it's the other question. Because I think they go together. Not just do you want it, but do you need the fire? Do you need the fire? Do you ever get to a place in your life, or are you in a place in your life right now where the, 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 the coals of the spiritual fire in your life are just down to a dim glow? There's just barely a flicker. And you... You want to get down and, and blow on that fire and begin to encourage it back up again. But it's so weak and so faint that you're afraid if you blow too hard, you'll just blow it out. Do you need the fire to fall in your life? Do you need it to fall in your marriage, in your family? In the lives of your children. You know, it, it has nothing to do with you going home and getting out a piece of paper and a pen and trying to come up with a strategy that's going to bring about the fire in your life. It won't do it. Only God can do it. It comes through His... Sovereign power, like the wind. But when it comes, it's, it's remarkable and undeniable. What about our community? Does our community need the fire? Maybe you work in a place with a lot of people. Maybe you work at the power company and the guy that works in the office next to you received Jesus and his life's turned around. And then a lady down the hall, she 
got saved and started walking with Jesus. And one by one, people started getting saved. Or maybe you're a school teacher and, and people have started getting saved at your school amongst the staff. And one by one, teachers start coming to faith in Christ. Or maybe you live in a neighborhood and, and one by one, your neighbors have started coming to faith in Christ. And there's this excitement and this wonder and this amazement at what God's doing and you see the fire rushing through your workplace or your community. Do we see the fire rushing through our community? wonder what this little section in Scripture would teach us about how, how we ought to wait. How we ought to obey, how we ought to think about our lives and the life that, that we live in the culture in which surrounds us and whether or not we really want the fire or even need the fire. Or do we just want the fire for us and do we just need the fire to stay in here? And we're perfectly fine if everyone else that lives around us is only concerned about the fire that shoots out of the tailpipe of their idol that they're driving around this week. Hmm? I don't know. Do we want it? Do we need it? Are we just content with how things are. So what about these followers? What can we say about them? Four things. The first thing we can say about them is that the first one is they were passionate about community. This is the first thing that just jumps out at you when you read these verses is they were clearly passionate about a certain number of things. And the first one is community. Now, think about how interesting it is that here we have a group of people that for all intensive purposes had every reason to be really discouraged or at least confused or a little befuddled because even though... Yes, it was remarkably encouraging that they had just spent time with the risen Lord. So they were operating in sort of this uh, momentum of he's alive, he's alive. But at the same time, he's gone. And remember, they don't know what's coming. They don't know what they're getting in lieu of him. They don't know what it is that he's tried to explain to them is going to be better than having him physically amongst them. They don't understand that. And so it would have been real easy for them to get discouraged and to think, well, why do you have to leave? Or why couldn't he stay? Or this is ridiculous. Or I'm not going to keep, if he's just going to keep leaving and coming and leaving and coming, I mean, I'm just not going to do that. That's just not going to work for me. But they don't do that at all. What they do is draw in together. They do the opposite of what happens most of the time in our culture today. Remember when we were going through the Gospel of John and we got there to, towards the end in John chapter 21? 
after Jesus is crucified, the Bible said, Now after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples were there. Simon Peter said to him, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you. Did you ever just think about that for a second? Here they are. They're all sitting around. Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they didn't say, well, if you're going, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going home to my house or I'm going back to what I used to do. Or, but they didn't do that. They were together. And then one of them says, I'm going over here. And they said, well, if you're going over there, I'm going over there. We're staying together. Whatever we do, we're going to do together. We're going to do this as a team. Hmm. So even at the height of discouragement, we see this passion for community for togetherness and in Acts chapter 1 we see the same thing over and over the scripture says and they were together and they were together and they were together they were in one accord they were together and when even when we get to chapter 2 look at chapter 2 verse 1 when the day of Pentecost arrived when it come they were all together in one place so still they're all together and don't be fooled into believing that they were just together because, well, you know, because they all, they all liked each other. They were all the same. They were, they were all, you know, they, they were all, they just fit together perfectly. Don't, don't get that idea at all. You see there in the text, look at Acts 1 verse 13. It starts listing out some of the people that are in the upper room. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew. It says Simon the Zealot. Hmm. You know who the Zealots were? That's the original tea party. The Zealots were the revolutionaries. The Zealots were the, we're going to, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to take it. That's who they were. Hey, you got to be from the 80s or you don't know what just happened. <laughs> Suddenly you're picturing a six foot nine transvestite. I mean, so scratch that from your memory. <laughs> hey, it just happened. The wind just blew that right out of my mouth. I don't even know what happened. So there's Simon the Zealot in there. See, Simon made me say that. He's a zealot, man. He's so these people, you know, these zealots, they were the anti-Rome, right? We're going we, we're gonna to get Rome. We're not going to sit around and let them rule us and push us around. Now, who else is in the room with Simon the Zealot? Well, Matthew's there. What was Matthew? Tax collector. For who? For Rome. So you've got Matthew and Simon the Zealot in the same room together in one accord. I, you can't get any further apart than that. That's like Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi hugging. All right, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to stay focused on what I'm saying. I'm not saying another thing. So look at verse 14. They all continued with one accord. Look, 
they're not just in the room together like they have to, you know, and Simon's over there and Matthew's over there. They're all together and they're all really together. They want to be together. They're in one accord. They're in agreements. They're one. All 120 of them. Listen, you got Mary Magdalene who was possessed by evil spirits. You got, you got, you got Jesus' brothers who rejected him for most of his ministry up until now. You got all kinds of crazy things going on. And yet you got 120 people. I thought, well, is that just a random, I mean, you know, Luke is a, is, is a historian, so he's telling us there's 120 people. And then it dawned on me, 120 people is a number that we read in Jewish law that is the minimum requirement to start a new community. And I thought, well, Amen. And so they understood that they were a community. They were together. They were the family of God. You see, that's the thing. Families do life together, right? They do. That's what a family does. A family doesn't always get along. A family doesn't always see everything the same way. A family doesn't always agree on everything. But they do life together. That's what makes a family a family. See, a family's made up of different individuals that have different opinions and have experienced even different things. But they do life together. That's what, that's what families do. That's what we do. We raise our kids together. We work on our marriages together. We bury our loved ones together because we're a family. We, we do all the things that come in life together. And so sometimes we do fun things together and sometimes we do hard things together. But whatever life brings, we do it together. That's what God's people are intended to do. They're to be passionate about community. So besides passionate about community, number two, they were passionate about worship. I mean, look at verse 14. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Hmm. You know, if you go back to the very end of Luke's gospel, you know, because Luke sort of ends the gospel and then begins in, in Acts chapter 1, but, but he, he, there's a little bit of overlap. The very, very end of Luke's gospel, here's how it, it ends. Luke 24. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. So Jesus ascends, verse 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. You see? So he's telling us about this same time. What were they doing after the ascension when they were waiting in Jerusalem? They were continually and passionately worshiping God. Not individually, but as a community. You see, they didn't all just say, well, here's what, you know, let's all just go home, go back to our own place, do our own thing, and then we'll reconvene when the fire falls. No, that's not what they did. They stayed together. They did life together. It was woven all through their life. In fact, it's so, for in our culture, we would say, well, it's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's a life thing. I just thought about my, my life. 
just thought about how my life goes. And I think, well, let's see, Monday's my day off. So last Monday, I spent the day with uh, a couple brothers from the church working on a project together. Then Tuesday comes, I have staff meeting with the staff. We eat lunch together with a bunch of men from the church uh, at Buffalo Wild Wings every Tuesday at 11.45, there's a whole bunch of tables of men from Michael Memorial. Anybody's welcome to come. We just hang out and eat lunch together. Wednesday, of course, I was here at church. Thursday, I met with a young couple that their life's off the track and been experiencing some very challenging hardships. And I remember as they were telling me all these things that were going on in their life, I looked at him and said, so, so how did all this happen? And they said to me, well, we got out of fellowship. We got out of fellowship. So we talked about how we're going to put all that back together. And we talked about how, how the, the family is going to come behind them and help them walk through this difficult season together. Yeah, then last night, we gathered together. Our deacon ministry put, put on a, an amazing banquet for all of our widows and widowers in the church. And uh, it was wonderful. And we all just enjoyed this wonderful meal together and, and got to love on each other. And then as I was uh, driving home, uh, one of the guys in my D group called me up and said, hey, he, he, uh, he flies the law enforcement helicopter, and so he's out, you know, patrolling the skies with cruising the coast and everything. He said, hey, you want to go up in the helicopter? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I got home, jumped in my truck, went down there and uh, <laughs> strap in the helicopter. Now, it's not my first rodeo in a helicopter, but you know, it's the first time I've been in a helicopter with no doors. You know, I'm like, isn't there like a thing that latches down here or something? Am I missing that? No, we're just, we're just out in the wind. <laughs> so we get up there, and it's a beautiful night. And we're zinging around Harrison County, and he looks over at me. You know, we got the, <laughs> uh, Tony, you want to, okay, you're about to drive. <laughs> Say what? Okay, see that joystick? Uh-huh. So I start driving this thing. Man, I'm flying a helicopter. And I'm flying all around, you know, and I move it this way, and we go this way and that way, and, you know, and so I'm getting comfortable with it, you know, and he's like, all right, we're going to make a big turn. So we start making a big turn, you know, and I'm like, why we got to turn my side down? Like, I don't know about all that. <laughs> and we start turning, you know what I mean? And when, well, we get over, we're going over the, the, the Biloxi Ocean Springs Bridge, and we're coming back around. And sun, all of a sudden, we hit a little, whoo, a little thing of turbulence. And that sucker went, whoo, like, you know, ho. And he says, it's just like being in a car. When you hit a bump, you just ride through it. And I said, that ain't nothing like being in a car. I'm 500 feet in the air. <laughs> totally different. But anyway, I 
my point is, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. I want a helicopter. That's my point, okay? That's the point of the whole thing. So next week, we're taking up a special offering. What is wrong with me? Anyway, uh, the point is, is that it's every day of my life, it's somehow connected to the community, the family, the, the worship that we enjoy of, of God together. It's, it's, a, it's an entire lifestyle. It's everything. So, you know, when I, this coming week, when I, when I go to worship God and preach the gospel at the home of grace, a bunch of guys will go with us and we go together. We do that together. And when we, you know, whatever we do, we do together. You see, and it all, it all revolves around this passion that we have for worshiping God. But when we look around, we see that not everybody is that way. And far too often, people are very cavalier, nonchalant about the worship of God. You know, there's so many times where people, families, they allow other things to crowd worship out of their life. They they neglect the fact that God's been so very clear. Now, now I want you to think about something. These 120 people are waiting in this upper room in community, worshiping God. And all Jesus said was, go to Jerusalem and wait. He didn't say, now, if you don't wait, this is what's going to happen. He didn't threaten them. He didn't. He just said, go and wait. And I started thinking about how nobody had to wonder what he meant. Nobody had to think about, you know. Now, what does that mean? No. And so when the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Is that complicated? Is that Do, do you have to know Greek or Hebrew to figure out what that means? And he even says, as many others have, don't do what so many people do. Don't neglect worship. For 2,000 years, the people of God have been getting together corporately to worship him and glorify him on the first day of the week. But in every generation, there's a people who find every excuse, every other activity, every other thing is always at what? What is at war with that? And if I pastored a hundred years, I wouldn't understand it. I wouldn't understand it. And you say, well, that's because you're the pastor. Well, it wasn't that way when I wasn't the pastor. God saved me. And from that day on, I've been in church every time the doors are open. Why wouldn't you be? I mean, he gave me new life. He, 
He forgave my sin. He saved me. He invited me into his presence. He has plans for me. I mean, no one had to threaten me. No one had to stand over me. I mean, well, what else would I do? What other thing is, what, what could rival that? No. Watching my team play a game? No. Well, plus I don't have a team. No. Making sure that, you know, my kid gets to play on the, uh, gets a starting position or never missing my kid's game or any. No, none of those things. I mean, think of the, the culture we live in. I mean, people like waiting, you know, in tents for 36 hours to get a new gadget. So you don't have anything better to do than that. That is a problem. And yet, you know, the Scripture says, don't be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm not... Listen, I'm not saying that all these other things are bad. I'm just simply saying Jesus is way better. That's all I'm saying. It's just way better. I don't see the, I don't see the, 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 the challenge. But the truth is, is that your priorities are going to tell us everything we need to know about you and about who you know and about who you're talking to or ministering to. And I think the most common thing that, you know, I hear from, from busy, worn-out families is, you know, we just, we just don't have time. And I think, do you really believe that? You, do you really believe that that's true? You don't have time? It's not about having time, it's about making time. You see, we all have the same time, don't we? Sure. It's about satisfying the flesh or seeking the supernatural for the soul. It's so they're passionate about community and about worship. Thirdly, they were passionate about the Scripture. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. They're, look at what happens. and They're all there. Peter stands up in their midst. Look at verse 16. Peter says, Men and brethren, this Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, what is that about? Well, just think about it for a second. There's, they're all together. They're, they're, they're a family, and they're worshiping God, but it's not all just roses. There's, you know, there's a white elephant in the room that's got to be addressed. There's problems. Everything's not just perfect. One of our leaders, one of our team members, one of the main people 
bailed on us, and committed suicide. He sold out Jesus. Like, we need to have a talk about that. That's kind of jacked up. You see, sometimes people bail on us, and they, they do some really jacked up things, and they say some really jacked up things, and, and then, you know, the tendency maybe to be like, well, we're just going to pretend that never happened. But it did. It did. And we got to figure out how to make sense of it. We need to have a conversation that people are jacked up, and weird things happen, and we got to, life is hard, and we're going to have to make sense out of difficult things. And so how do they do that? They go straight to the Scripture. I mean, there's a great lesson here. Peter says, look, this happened. You know this happened. But the Scripture says that it was predicted that this is, this is, this is what happened and this is how we handle it. I mean, how do you explain what's going on in your life? How do you explain what's happening? How are you going to make sense of your spouse's dementia? How are you going to make sense when your kid gets diagnosed with Asperger's disease? How are you going to make sense of a husband who won't interact with you or engage with you? How are you going to make sense of a, a teenager who won't speak to you? How are you going to make sense of that? You're just going to pretend like it's not happening? You're just going to not have the awkward conversation and act like it's really not going on? I mean, where are you going to turn to for the difficult questions that need answering? The young people in this room, well, where are they going to turn to to figure out what school to attend or, or what career to, to pursue or who they're going to marry or all these giant questions? Well, what are they going to do? Where are they going to seek wisdom? How are you going to make sense of the fact that you got laid off from your job or, or some medical condition was sprung into your family and now you're in financial ruin? How are you going to make sense of that? How are you going to explain that? Are you just going to pretend like that didn't happen? Everybody knows it happened. I mean, we're we just going to act like it didn't happen? How are you going to make sense of addiction in your family? How are you going to make sense of this crazy, broken, upside-down world in which we live? How will you make sense of it? How? The Scripture. Listen, the Word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. Either you're going to turn to the Word or you're going to walk in perpetual darkness. The only way you're going to walk in the light is through the Word. If you don't turn to the Word, there's no lamp unto your feet and there's no light unto your path. Now, you're walking in a dark world without a lamp. What do you think is going to happen? It doesn't mean you're, you're not going to stump your toe. It's not going to mean that difficulty's not going to be on the path. What it means is when the difficulty comes, you'll be able to illuminate it and get some kind of understanding about it. That's what it means. But if you don't turn to the Word, you're going to walk in darkness. And so the way they explain, hey, this is what happened with Judas. 
This is why it happened. This is what we need to do. And so then Peter goes on and quotes the Psalms about we need to replace him. And so they go through the whole thing of casting lots and choosing two men. And okay. Who, did they just dream that up? No. They turned to the Word and the Word gave them direction. So they're passionate about community, about worship, about Scripture. And fourthly, they're passionate about prayer. It says in verse 14 that they continued with one another in prayer and supplication. Now, I wonder what they were praying about. I wonder what the prayers sounded like. I wonder if when they prayed, they said things that we say when we pray. Or if it was different. Because I want to pray like they prayed. I want to pray prayers that they prayed. You think they were praying for their needs? You think they were praying for their protection? You think they were praying for their healing? They weren't. I thought about this for a long time. What were they praying? Well, since I wasn't there and since the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, we're going to have to just think to ourselves and go, okay, well, based on what we know about them, we know who, mostly who was there. We know what they were passionate about. So all of those things together would indicate to me that they were, they were praying kingdom prayers. And here's why. Somebody had taught them how to pray. So just like they weren't winging anything else they were doing, it would be foolish for us to think they were just winging the way they were praying or what they were praying for. They were doing the same thing in their prayers that they were doing in every other arena of life. They were doing what they had been instructed to do. And so what did the one who taught them how to pray teach them? Well, he told them. He said, our Father in heaven, please heal my affliction. Please fix the situation with my job. Please Make my marriage stronger. Please help me get out of debt. Please. Please make me better. Please make my life easier. Please spare me from any suffering. Is that what Jesus said? No. He said, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They prayed kingdom prayers because the one who taught them how to pray taught them to pray for the kingdom. And if you think about what he says, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11 when he taught them how to pray, if you just look at verse 2, if you look at that, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what Jesus is saying is that The priority is the kingdom. 
But the danger is our will. The enemy of the kingdom is our will. Your kingdom come, but not our will. Because if our will comes, the kingdom won't come. It's like when you, when you talk to a missionary from another country and they come to the United States to receive some sort of training or they're on some furlough or they come to speak in churches to raise support for something and they come so excited to come see America, but it doesn't take them long before they're very discouraged and long to go back to their own people. And there's countless stories and accounts of missionaries from around the world that come into our churches and are like, man, these people are just not at all obsessed with the kingdom of God and His glory, but obsessed with their own comfort. All they ever want to pray about is themselves. That's not what Jesus taught them to do. He taught them to seek the kingdom and then just trust Him. That all their needs would be taken care of. And, and there's, no, there's nothing in there about wants. It makes you think to yourself, I wonder what all our brothers and sisters around the world are praying for this morning. Do you think they're praying prayers for God to fix all their problems or to meet all their needs? Or do you think they're, they're praying and they're saying, God, our government is anti-Christian and against us. And we face harm every day because of our persecution. But thank you because it makes the church stronger. It makes your people more fit. They're thanking God for things like all the challenges that they face and how they cause them to remember the awesome things that God has done in their life and propels them forward in faithfulness. They thank God because the worse things get in the world, the greater their motivation is to tell people about Jesus because it's a reminder that those who die apart from Him will face an eternity in hell. We should try praying kingdom prayers. We should, we should fast from praying for ourselves for a while. I think we've done enough of that. I think we ought to spend some time praying for kingdom things. We ought to pray about the fact that 
Right now, as we sit in here this morning, there are Christians being starved to death in North Korea. We ought to pray about that. We ought to pray about the fact that there's 64 million Christians in India today. And every single day of their life, they don't know if they're going to live or die to see the sun set. We should pray about what happens in Somalia every time a person declares faith in Jesus Christ. It's unconscionable. We should pray about the people right now as we're sitting here. They're in casinos strung along our coastline. And their addiction to gambling has cost them everything that they have. And they're going through their last few dollars and their plan is to commit suicide today. We should pray about that. We shouldn't act like that doesn't happen because it's happening right now. We should pray about that. We should pray that God would break our heart about that. We should pray about the fact that right now in Harrison County, Mississippi, there are more children in state custody in Harrison County, Mississippi than in Orleans Parish, New Orleans, Louisiana per capita. Get your head around that for a second. There are more foster kids in Harrison County than in New Orleans. We should pray about that. That's a kingdom problem. It's a reminder that God didn't, God hasn't done here among us what He's done because we're awesome. He's done what he's done among us because he's awesome. The reason why Rescue 100 was birthed out of this place is because it's, it happens to be a place in the great, one of the greatest needs in the United States is right here in this county. And you know what? We didn't even know about it. I didn't even know about it. See, God did that. He didn't say, well, you're so awesome. I think I'm going to do something amazing. No. He said, watch how awesome I am, that I can do something amazing with you. I mean me, not you, me. We should pray about those things. We should spend the next week in our D groups, in our Sunday school classes, praying for the kingdom. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, let's don't spend all our time praying for all these other things. Let's seek him first and his righteousness, and let's trust him in all the other things. Because that's no doubt what was going on in the upper room because they had been taught I know everything Jesus taught them, at least it's recorded in Scripture, about prayer. And so do you. And so if we just take all those and put them together, we can come up with a pretty solid understanding. Oh, there's 120 people. They don't know how long they're going to be there. They don't know what's going to happen when it happens. But they're committed to each other. They're committed to the worship of God. They're committed to Scripture. And they're committed to praying for the kingdom.
got some kingdom prayers for us. Kingdom culture prayers. Let's pray that love for God alone would consume his people. Let's just pray that the love for God would consume his people. Let's pray for not a wave of blessing, but a wave of repentance would demolish strongholds and tear down idols and revive his church. Kingdom prayers. One week from today, we'll be talking about Acts chapter 2. And you know what's in Acts chapter 2. So why don't, we, why don't we together pray? Pray over this next week from now until next Sunday morning. Let's pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to flood the church and fill His people once again. Then when that happens, nobody has to ask the question of do we want Fire to fall, or do we need fire to fall? No. Let's pray for it to flood us and fill us. Let's pray for total surrender to the call to advance His kingdom around the world. Through whatever means necessary. No strings attached. Whatever, whatever God, whatever you want, whatever. Whatever that looks like, whatever that feels like, whatever that is, whatever. We'll do that. If you're brave enough to start praying those prayers, here's what's going to happen. At some point during this week, probably sooner, not later, you're going to have to Address a question in your heart. Do you want the fire to fall? Do you need the fire to fall? You're going to start praying these prayers and you're going to find it hard to pray, some of you. Because it's not about you. And your, your flesh is going to want to go back to praying about you. And what you're saying is, I don't need the fire. I just need these things. Do you want the fire? Do you need the fire? That's the question. Let's stand and bow our heads.